is part two of our 2016 year end wrap up. In this episode, um, Jonathan Armstrong talks to us about the collapse of Safe Harbor and the troublesome bolts of private sector shield from a European uh, perspective and what it may mean going forward. Matt Kelly talks about retaliation, the arrival of front pay, and the general escalation of retaliation risk for uh, from the Securities and Exchange Commission. He gives some ideas on the auditing of culture. And then he talks about one of his uh, most uh, interesting and read posts on compliance dashboards, what is metadata for the compliance officer, and how that works into a best practices compliance program. Mike Volkoff leads us on a discussion of the FCPA pilot program, how it worked in 2016 and what it may portend for 2017. He discusses uh, Panama Papers in the context of beneficial ownership and what that means for not only the fight against anti-money laundering but anti-corruption going forward. Finally, he takes a look at corporate boards and how corporate boards uh, need to become more involved in the fight against bribery and corruption. Obviously, the Wells Fargo case has been voted the biggest scandal in a Wall Street Journal poll, so it's certainly a propitious time for boards to take a look at uh, these types of issues. This episode comes in at a little over an hour. Uh, it's part two of our two-part series. If you didn't listen to part one, I would invite you to uh, take a listen to that. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to the wrap-up edition of 2016 for Everything Compliance. As always, we are joined by the extraordinary, extraordinaire panelist of Mr. Translations himself, Jay Rosen, Matt Kelly, editor and founder of Radical Compliance, Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, and Jonathan Armstrong with Quartery Compliance in London. So, gentlemen, welcome. Matt, you had uh, some interesting uh, things to bring up from both, um, I thought, the tech side, and then uh, really uh, you, you, you talked about it earlier, the auditing side of compliance. So what were the three things that uh, struck out or stuck out for you in 2016? Yeah, sure. So uh, three things that I wound up writing about on Radical Compliance, I've seen them elsewhere. We've all talked about them from time to time. I think one of the biggest ones actually has been changing right up to this week was uh, the escalation of whistleblower retaliation, uh, maybe not even escalation, but more transformation of what that is from sanctions against companies for specific instances of retaliation to this greater doctrine change and enforcement from the SEC over are you impeding a speak-up culture at your company? So they talked a lot about pre-taliation at the SEC. Um, one of the more interesting court cases, not related to the SEC directly, but in the same realm, um, was a victory over the summer of an employee who won front pay or retaliation. Uh, he claimed that he had been unemployed as a result of speaking up for many years. He was older. He was never going to get his job back. And a judge agreed with him and awarded him damages based on salary he did not get from when he left his company to that day and front pay of salary he would get from that day forward until he retires in about 2022 or so. Um, suddenly, this is big money. 
And when you start combining all of this, you start to think that whistleblower retaliation, pretaliation, all of this, it's a much deeper cultural risk. And just this week on Tuesday, we saw the first pretaliation enforcement case where the SEC had actually found that these pretaliation clauses interfered with its ability to do an investigation. It had called up a employee of an energy company um, that had been making people wave away their rights to speak to regulators as part of severance packages. That person had left the company. The SEC was investigating the company, wanted to talk to that employee who said, basically, not going to do it because I signed this and I want to protect myself. Even after the SEC told that employee, your company has rescinded this upon our request, the employee still said, nope, not going to talk. Um, so this is not a phantom risk of these clauses, the stifling whistleblowers. This actually does happen. Uh, and as a result, the fine to that company was 10 times larger than what we have typically seen in other pre-retaliation cases. So uh, that's the real deal, pre-retaliation and culture risk. I think that's number one. Um, number two is this need to get a better sense of your corporate culture. Like I said, I attended that audit uh, session earlier this year where we talked about how you might audit corporate culture. But why are we talking about this? We're talking about it because of problems like Wells Fargo, where the culture was very incentive-driven and led to Wells Fargo employees fabricating accounts. Uh, Wells Fargo is the biggest case of incentives warping your culture. It's not the only one. Uh, the SEC sanctioned Credit Suisse for something very similar. FINRA has taken smaller actions against smaller advisory firms out there that basically they are skewering their incentives so people feel a pressure culture that causes them to commit fraud or lie about what they're doing to get money. Um, how are we going to measure that? How are we going to audit it? Remember at the beginning of the year, all the financial regulators, what were they talking about back in January or March or whenever? Culture risk was the big sexy thing. How do you assess that? How do you manage it? You know, I don't think that's going to go away. Um, and I do think that it is about re reckless risk taking. And, you know, that ties into incentives, tone at the top. Very difficult for companies to get their arms around. But that's, that's going to be here in 2017 and beyond, too. My last one was kind of a surprise for me. I, I wrote a post back in March about what goes on your compliance dashboard that got much more attention and comment than I was expecting. I love everything I write, but you know, really I didn't necessarily think that was gonna be the big chatterbox piece for the first half of the year, but it was. Uh, which tells me that still there's a lot of data analytics, uh, data wrapping your arms around what data feeds you have, how do you tie all this together to get a good synthesis of what a company's risks are. It's still very challenging for corporate compliance officers. And um, the tech challenges of taming your data, that's not going to go away for a long, long time, 2017 and beyond. So those are the three that I had this year. Let me just jump in, Matt, and go back to your uh, uh, first point on the whistleblower, because you said yeah. something that really intrigued me which is, do you think the SEC has moved from uh, sanctioning companies for actual retaliation 
to sanctioning companies for potential retaliation. But then you said for impeding a speak up culture. Is, uh, is that something that you think the SEC could actually uh, sanction companies for if there is no evidence? Uh, I, well, I mean, number one, yes, because up until this week, all of the half dozen pre-taliation enforcement actions we've seen, there wasn't any evidence that these pre-taliation clauses were actually causing employees to clam up or not call the SEC or anything like that. Um, and you'll notice until this week, the fines for pretaliation clauses were not terribly large for these companies. It was a couple of hundred thousand. And if you're a large publicly traded company, that isn't a lot of money. And the remediation for it is pretty simple. You do a big global find and replace of your employment contracts where you delete any clause that says, you know, you cannot speak to competitors or whatever, blah, 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 blah and government regulators. You can't talk to them either. That's the offending language. Take it out. You can still protect your confidential information. You can still have a non-disparagement clause. It's just that you can't tell employees, don't talk to regulators either. Once you do that, it's it's done. Um, what I guess almost annoys me about pretaliation risk is that it's so easy to solve. Uh, all of these remediations that you've seen the company said to change the language and then alert former employees who had already signed these agreements. They're no longer restrictive to talking to government agencies. If you want to, go ahead. That's it. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, they're, they've been enforcing. It's not a terribly difficult enforcement, um, but there wasn't any evidence up until this week where we saw one case where a, the SEC reached out to somebody who specifically cited the pretaliation clause and said, I'm not talking to you. And there was another one this week. There were two cases this week. The first one, uh, the SEC only said that it had evidence that the clause impeded somebody from speaking. Didn't really shed much detail on it. But the second case against Sandridge Energy, that was the big one where there was some real evidence that these clauses are causing people not to talk to the SEC. And that, by no stretch of the imagination, the SEC didn't like it and made it, imposed a much bigger fine. So, Michael, when you were uh, doing antitrust work, um, how did the uh, the uh, DOJ handle that issue around whistleblowers, or is that really just too different than uh, to compare it to what the SEC is doing now? Well, they, you know, they do have uh, what's called individual leniency, where in the antitrust area, for example, if they're you're a member of a cartel and you're a, an employee at a company and you are participating in a car, in cartel activity, uh, you can seek leniency as an individual and report to the uh, government, that type of thing. I, I don't think the Justice Department is very far from where the SEC is. Um, I actually think that uh, the Wells Fargo case is going to lead to more um, I think active or proactive uh, enforcement in this area, um, and uh, and I know Matt's been talking about this for a while, and I think he's right too because um, this is perhaps one of the most debilitating um, sort of occurrences that can happen in any company. 
uh, to its culture. And in particular, we saw how, you know, Wells Fargo, eight people were fired. Um, and Matt, I also think, raises in sort of his list of three, uh, a really one of my pet peeves uh, that I, uh, I guess would, you know, almost fall into the rant category is uh, the importance of focusing on culture. Um, and I do feel that the compliance profession has to spend more time on that issue. I think it's easy, easier to sit there and figure out controls and policies and procedures and how to make sure things are reviewed. And it's, it's a lot more sort of tangible than uh, culture is. But I, I would like to see people develop more sort of metrics and reporting uh, and partnering with HR offices on the issue of culture. And the more that we companies uh, devote time and resources to culture, I have always told companies it's your best control in the end is if you have a culture of ethics. So, um, you know, that's one way to turn whistleblowing into a, you know, speak up culture is uh, to actually fire somebody for retaliating for whistleblowing. Uh, and uh, one company that I know in particular uh, did that, and it had a just dramatic impact on uh, the company's speak-up culture because everybody started to trust the system a little bit more. I mean, they actually fired somebody for uh, retaliation. So that's, um, you know, Matt's hit a, a couple of, uh, I think, really big points. But I'm, I think we're going to see justice get more involved in this. That's all. So, Matt, if I could uh, follow up on your uh, dashboard article, because uh, you and I have talked about data analytics uh, much earlier than 2016 um, for a while now. And my sense was from the article you wrote and what I've heard you say is frustration from the chief compliance officer or the compliance practitioner uh, on several levels. One is really not even knowing what questions to ask or what data to look at, but two is getting their arms around it, and three, then having something actionable come from it is, do you think we're still really at that starting point? Uh, yes and no. Um, I think a lot of compliance officers would want to know and already do know in their head, you know, what are the five or six things I want to track on a daily dashboard? Um, that's the easy part. But then you have to start to think, well, okay, what is the data about that data I want to see on my dashboard that I would therefore need to feed in? Um, you know, I liken it to having five or six little uh, dashboard gauges on your desktop, but there's going to be five or six feeds of data that filter into each one of those gauges. And suddenly we're talking about a couple of different data feeds. Um, and then you get to really tricky questions. What if they're in different formats? What if it's different software? I need to talk to my IT guys about how do I do this? Um, and that's where it gets tricky on one level. Uh, and then on another level, I think that as much as we all like to say the phrase big data analytics, you're not analyzing so much as you are synthesizing. You're taking a couple of different disparate points, a couple of different reads on your five or six dashboard gauges on your computer screen, seeing what all five or six of them say and tying them together. How is reading on one pressure gauge 
What does that say about another one over on the other side of my computer? And if they both flipped red at the same time, do I have two separate problems? Or do I have one bigger problem that's triggering two different thresholds at the same time? And that is much harder to understand. You know, the, how do you take a couple of different points all together and then sit back and study them and see, oh yeah, if I configure all of this in my head the right way, I have this shining new insight. Even a seasoned compliance officer is still gonna struggle with that a bit, I think. I certainly do when I think about how you configure all of this to give you something good, to give you a deeper insight to what's going on. So you've got some technical challenges and you've got some philosophical, what does this all mean challenges. But if I asked any senior compliance officer, what are the five things you wanna see on your dashboard every day? Like, I'm sure they'd all know the five they want. They just don't know how to put the five together the right way and what all five of them would say, depending on which ones are lit up which way on any given time. So uh, Jay, on the work you, on the translation work you do, is that something that uh, is the speak up culture, the uh, not so much the hotline, but just the concepts of getting people to raise their hands internationally? Is that something that, uh, that you have to deal with as Mr. Translations? Um, it's something that we're seeing a lot more of these days. So, um, you know, from those more macro issues that I've spoken about before, um, you know, with the code of conduct and policy and procedures, um, we're starting to see a lot more um, discrete data that's coming in that we're translating. So, you know, looking at the kind of stuff that Matt would be talking about, getting people's T&E reports and looking at email chains about who said what to when. So, um, you know, those are certain things that when you're you're starting to, um, you know, either read your indices or you're trying to make a case, those are things that are now coming in in non-traditional languages. So, you know, we're, we're seeing stuff that's coming in Vietnamese or Polish or things like that that you wouldn't really normally think about. But, you know, that is where the um, the local bribery is happening now. So if you look at, you know, what we're coming to see about um, uh, Teva, that's, you know, where, where the stuff is. So it, it even does uh, trickle down to a, a translations level in terms of um, what we are getting from the whistleblowers. But I'm not specifically doing anything to, you know, help that. They are coming in through a hotline and what typically happens is if they come through and you know they're coming through in a foreign language they will connect with a different operator who's able to uh, speak that language and is able to take the report okay so let me take a few second break for so i'll know where to edit and then we'll swing over to mr volkov mike volkov what are three of the Things that uh, you've thought about uh, as uh, very large, important, or significant topics for you in 2016? Well, I, I mean, I think all of us have sort of touched on one of the issues, uh, and I always like to sort of think about what's the future of compliance and where's the profession grow and going and growing uh, at the same time. And I think uh, Matt mentioned analytics. 
we also are talking about you know best ways to push policies and procedures that Jay was talking about. And I, I think more and more what I see are people are using uh, technology. And I, I use technology as a term, I guess I go back to, I guess it was called Future Shock years and years ago, a book written that was supposedly um, you know, going to transform our society about uh, technology. Well, you know, we're not, I'm not the greatest at technology, but I do see how compliance professionals are starting to leverage it and use it more. And I think that, that uh, it's not, you know, we do bandy about terms like, and, and Matt clarified, I think, exactly what I'm talking about in terms of data analytics. It's not data analytics as much as it is smart data or certain data and how to use it uh, and synthesize from that. And I do see when people have budget shortfalls, uh, when people have limited resources and, and uh, you know, ways to leverage their resources these days is to use certain technology products. And I think that we're going to see a lot of growth around uh, the industry. Um, you know, I'm always struck by how many vendors are at SCCE. And I always spend, you know, some time down there just to find out what's new and what's going around and what people are talking about. And I think that we're going to see more and more of that. Um, dashboards are really important. I'd love to see a culture on the dashboards. I'd like to see more measurement uh, and more sort of, um, I say, real-time type measurement uh, of things or quicker turnaround. So, I think that's where the cutting edge is going to be. Uh, so those who are good at uh, technology, like Jay, Matt, uh, and even Tom Fox, uh, you guys are going to be sort of, I think, some of the leaders uh, in pushing some of those. Because, Tom, I know you've spent a lot of time with uh, certain companies and products throughout you know, your writing career here and found a lot of interesting uh, products that were helpful for compliance people. And I even have clients who've taken your advice and used some of them and have been very, very happy with uh, some of those technologies. So, um, you know, we've seen it in the third-party due diligence area, and I'm not saying that that's, you know, any marker for the future because I still think there's a lot of work to be done in that area. But um, I do think that people are going to embrace more technology because surveys show that when people get a good product, the CCOs or compliance staff, they're usually very, very happy. Uh, and it makes their jobs easier. And I think that's going to continue as we sort of move from the paper society uh, to the techno society. Um, my other issue, and that sort of relates to this in one way in terms of due diligence, is uh, you know, I have been surprised at how much people are not spending time on defining beneficial ownership. And that has been a pet, another pet peeve of mine besides culture is the need for effective due diligence to focus on not just, hey, there's a private equity company that owns, um, you know, 20% interest in this third party uh, agent we're using, but it turns out that uh, that part of that private equity company is owned by a government official. And um, I think we're seeing sort of an improvement or demands for improvement, not just on the fact of due diligence, but the quality of due diligence. And quality of due diligence to me means getting your beneficial ownership. Uh, I actually think in a corruption due 
diligence is going to and has moved beyond what is being done in sort of the AML context, which is more uh, limited in many respects than I think the risks that we look at for anti-corruption uh, type situations. And my last issue is, of course, uh, my favorite issue, which is the FCPA, the pilot project. And I think what we've seen here at the end of the year is the usual end of the year push. Uh, I guess we we skipped that from last year, but two years ago we had Alstom and Avon uh, settled in the last month, as I recall, of the year. And now we have uh, Odebrecht and we have Teva, which was uh, announced today uh, in terms of two mega settlements. And I can't think of a better way to remind everybody on the importance of anti-corruption compliance across different industries. Uh, and uh, it, what is interesting to me about Odebrecht is that uh, here we have people coming to the United States to basically get a global settlement in a way. Uh, to force the issue uh, and to make sure that uh, everybody is covered uh, and they sort of resolve the thing globally. And uh, the U.S. government and the Justice Department, I think, was instrumental in, in getting that for Odebrecht. So, um, but a big kaboom at the end of the year here. Uh, this is just uh, another, sort. Of, to me, we're at the sort of 2010 um, time frame of enforcement again, and uh, whatever you may say about the pilot project and whether the incentives are whatever are appropriate, you know the Justice Department has reminded all of us again that they are the player and they're the one to watch, and uh, that they're not going away anytime soon. Like Matt said, that this is the Justice Department is not going anywhere, no matter under Trump administration's accessions you know, attorney generalship, uh, it's just going to keep going and it's going to keep going because there's too much momentum behind it. It's too lucrative and it's doing the right thing, which is enforcing uh, the law. And so, uh, you know, I think it's an important reminder for everybody again uh, about the FCPA and the importance of anti-corruption uh, compliance, which is which has been the story for years and years here, but I think it's sort of a good reminder for everybody. So those are my those are my semi rants, year and review type of thoughts. So Mike, let me see if I could uh, maybe dive into the pilot program a little bit more because the um, uh, the pilot program was designed to for uh, as a one year experiment to give companies a incentive to come in, self-disclose, uh, cooperate with an investigation, uh, remediate extensively, pay a profit disgorgement, and receive up to, per the pilot program, a 50% discount off the minimum fine range. Yet we saw uh, almost immediately in the summer of 2016, several companies received declinations. Uh, we had a couple of more uh, carry through in the fall, although we had some very large and significant uh, enforcement actions in the fall that did not have declinations. Um, do you see the pilot program, I guess, on, on two questions? One, do you see um, that from the Department of Justice's perspective, it was viewed as a success? And then two, uh, would, it, would you opine that it would be carried forward anyway, or will they maybe actually formalize the declination process? I, I think it's definitely been a success. I think they made sure it was a success. Uh, 
Um, and I think, uh, I think what the staff or I wouldn't say the staff, but what the, the, the sort of political people at the FCPA level wanted was the uh, ability to give declinations. They were overruled and forced to stick by the deputy attorney general's office, uh, Sally Yates, and forced to cut it back to a 50% discount. And I think that the move, what they've done in practice is try to um, almost give people a declination if you meet all of the elements, uh, which are not that easy to meet, by the way. I mean, remember, there has to be a self-disclosure, voluntary self-disclosure, and there has to be appropriate remediation. And remediation to me is becoming tougher and tougher and tougher uh, to meet as a standard. So... Um, I do think they're going to keep it going. I do think uh, I think there's going to be another push to probably put it uh, to give to be clearer about the uh, availability of a declination. And I think that's right. I think it's a good process. Um, I the one thing that's still missing is the uh, in criminal enforcement against individuals. We've had several cases this year where there are so many individuals that scream out to be prosecuted. I mean, even me as a former prosecutor, I'm sitting there going, I'll take that case. I'll take that case. Uh, I bring that case. Uh, there are so many that have not occurred. And um, I just think they're a little gun shy. Uh, and they're gun shy because they've been, you know, embarrassed in quotes, uh, you know, just because a certain, you know, person writes a negative comment about a criminal case, uh, you know, to me means nothing. Uh, you go up and down with your cases. And so I think, uh, I hope there's more emphasis just as a policy matter, not for any of my clients, but for, as a policy matter on more individual prosecutions and actually bringing them giving declinations so that you really encourage companies to cooperate against the bad actors and self-report and uh, giving a real carrot. I don't think the 50% has made that much of a difference. Uh, in I don't think it's caused people to, to disclose when they would not otherwise disclose. It's really the hope of a declination uh, that will get people to do that. Uh, I see the power of it, particularly I've been working this year a lot in the antitrust context with the leniency program, and the power of the leniency offer is is just huge, and it unearths incredible information and enforcement abilities for the government to, let's say, put a stop to a cartel, and they need to create a similar situation, I think, in bribery, given how secretive bribery is and difficult it is to prove. So I'm hopeful that we see it go that way. And I think the, I think the momentum's behind it. I think the staff has gotten used to it a little bit more, and there's a little bit more support at the staff level than there was, I think, initially. So Matt and Jay, uh, Matt, you talked to a lot of uh, audit and ERM risk management types. Do, do you hear them talking about the pilot program, or is it even on their radar? And Jay, you you really are down into the tactical level in many of your uh, assignments where you're working with lawyers who um, are really in the midst of an investigation. Are things like the pilot program at too high a level for them, or, or are they thinking about it as well? 
I, I can certainly say that the pilot program, which I'm a big fan of, is primarily something that is the attention of compliance officers. Um, I have not really heard about it discussed among audit people or risk management types, although I do think the principles behind it, they would probably welcome, but it is not, it, it's a little too subject specific for them to have it much on their radar screen. Um, for, from outside counsel, um, you know, it, it's definitely on the forefront of their mind. Um, a lot of the things that we've seen that came through earlier this year when the pilot program was uh, put into effect, some of these matters were matters that I had worked on four or five years ago. So I think um, not only are they using this as a mechanism to get resolution, but, you know, one of the things that I picked up yesterday in the, uh, the joint press conference between the DOJ, the SEC, and the FBI was the pace that they were able to, um, you know, wrap up uh, Odebrecht and Braskem, that they did it in less than a year and a half. And we still have some very major investigations that are uh, becoming pretty ripe, you know, that have been on the line for five years or so. So I think the promise is out there that uh, if companies are being uh, more proactive, that they are showing a cooperation. And one of the key things that I seem to read in, in most of these um, DPAs or, or MPAs or, um, you know, declinations is that the company not only uh, realized what was happening and not only cooperated, but they also began to remediate vigorously. So I think it's really paying tangible results and I, my hope is that it gets extended for another year, and then we really have um, some type of historical reference to look back and see if that pace will quicken uh, for other matters that come up in the ensuing year. So, Jay, I think you may have to leave us shortly. Uh, any last words uh, to the audience from uh, the vantage point of 2016? Uh, it's just... Uh, you know, I, I think the, the last three months have been uh, uh, just really chock full of changes. And uh, I think we're all getting away from, although absolute numbers are very big and, uh, you know, I'm sure Siemens is happy not to hold number one on the top 10. Uh, I, I think that we can be assured that those, uh, those places are going to keep changing. And um, the one thing that I want to learn more about and see going forward with the most recent thing is that uh, the U.S. really is taking a very uh, small percentage of this global settlement, and a large deal of this is staying within Brazil. So I want to see if that is just something on this matter, or if that's going to be a trend that goes forward into the new year. So uh, thanks, everyone. And uh, Tom and I will talk to you tomorrow on This Week in the FCPA. So, Mike and uh, Matt, if I could uh, follow up on one point that see, uh, might be able to tie together. Matt, on your ideas on auditing organizational culture, um, could, could you move that uh, audit or that concept of an audit 
up to how a board might use that. And Mike, then could you maybe tie it into some of the things you've written about this year, advocating more compliance expertise, not delivered to the board, but actually on the board and why you think that's so important? Um, well, sure, I can start. I, I do definitely think that auditing culture is, um, well, it's, it's important to do, but it's hard to do. Uh, the session I attended a couple of weeks ago about that really looked at how you might audit culture indirectly. Um, and, you know, what other departments do you want to look at, what their issues are, and how those activities might all take together, uh, how they might say how your culture is doing. Um, personally, I think boards would love to know about this because at a very simple, basic level, you're talking about things like temptation to commit wrongdoing, uh, alienation or exasperation that might lead you to not care about other wrongdoing. Uh, and you know, by and large, if a company has one sort of malfunction in its culture, it probably has some others, and you could wind up having bigger problems. Uh, you know, what I found interesting, I'll go back to that pretaliation case I mentioned against Sandridge Energy, uh, it really seemed to be ham-handed in its efforts to remediate the pretaliation. And the company also was going bankrupt in 2015 and 16. It did go bankrupt. It's, I almost want to say that if you are obsessed over small but significant cultural problems such as that, you probably have bigger problems you're ignoring and they're going to come up and bite you on the rear end. Um, so I do think boards would love that. I think that they need to get a, they, they probably do need an outside person or group such as the internal audit team, which is independent from most of the company. Uh, they need to get them to look at it because uh, you really, auditing culture yourself is gonna be very hard for HR or compliance or marketing or anybody else to do, but, um, you know, I think it's crucial, and I think boards think about it a lot. They just don't know how to think about it very effectively. So, Mike, how about that in terms of uh, board expertise? Well, that uh, that gets to you know one of my uh, another one of my issues, which is um, you know oftentimes we're sitting there talking to an audit committee. Uh, head that is focused, you know, 90, 80% of their time on financials and Sarbanes-Oxley and 20% of their time on compliance. When you have a person who's either gone through an internal investigation, government enforcement action, or a person with compliance expertise uh, on the board, the whole dynamic of a board changes. And, um, uh, the value, the proactive value of uh, compliance is much more, you know, openly discussed. Um, and even some cutting edge type issues of focusing on culture um, and measuring culture and not just relying on, you know, biannual surveys of employees to measure your culture that's conducted by uh, HR, but taking a more proactive approach to it. Um, usually, where, where I see expertise and compliance, I usually see more of a commitment from the CEO uh, in terms of speaking and, and 
backing the compliance issue. And I see a more sophisticated uh, sort of reporting regime. Uh, you wrote, I think, this week, Tom, about the importance of a compliance committee. Um, at the board level, I would love to see more of that. Uh, I don't, you know, I pushed for that for a long time, uh, but, you know, boards were somewhat reluctant to create yet another committee. Um, and I think there's going to be sort of a, this will be part of the change in board dynamics, I think, because ultimately uh, a lot of these problems, uh, and I know I'm preaching to the fire with Matt here, but uh, the board is usually sets the tone and sets the failure in place if it's going to happen for failure, usually on their part, to oversee and monitor a program effectively. Um, the case law right now is pretty much obviously in favor of boards, but I, I think there's going to be more of a push. Uh, and it goes back to the other issue that you mentioned, Tom, which is everybody in the marketplace now is pushing compliance as an appropriate uh, frame of reference. In other words, uh, you, uh, you tr everybody you deal with in the business world now wants to know, do you have a compliance program? Suppliers want have codes of conduct uh, that they have to subscribe to. Distributors have codes of conduct. Everybody wants assurances in this area. So, um, you know, I want to see the boards take a more active role. I think expertise is needed, and the boards, I think, can bring about a uh, real change in the culture of a company by holding people accountable uh, on, the, on this issue. So now I would like to uh, turn to Privacy Shield. I want to take a, a three to five second uh, quiet so I will have a place to know where to edit. So uh, you will hear nothing for a few seconds. Okay. Jonathan, I think probably the most significant event for U.S. companies, even far beyond the anti-corruption world, is going to be the changes in privacy, data privacy, privacy protection, all around privacy shield. There was a significant um, developments in privacy shield in 2016, and I'm afraid to say that it may only become more significant in 2017, but perhaps you could tell us uh, how we got to where we are now and where you might see it going under the Trump administration. Yeah, no, happy to. This is about, I guess, three and a half, four years worth of work for us in the whole uh, Schrems case and the collapse of Safe Harbor. But to, but to summarize, um, an Austrian student at the time, Max Schrems, who I uh, interviewed a few weeks ago, brought this case against Facebook. Let's call that Schrems 1 for now. He basically said that the Irish regulators should have supervised Facebook a bit better. I'm over-summarizing, but uh, the Irish regulators said they didn't have the power to do so because this safe harbor deal had been signed by the European Commission and the US authorities um, more than 10 years ago. The uh, uh, European uh, Court of Justice said, Tosh, you, the Irish regulator, should look at this. And then I think the slightly more surprising thing is they said, oh, and by the way, safe harbor isn't valid. And they said this in October 2015. How it works with European privacy law is currently 
each of the regulators in all of the EU member states is, is sovereign over its own jurisdiction. Some of them jumped the gun and said, we will start investigating. Most of them, though, said, we will postpone doing anything until the end of January this year, 2016. And you, the European Commission, have until then to put a new deal in place. Now, the Commission missed that deadline. But in very early February, they said, we've got something new. You're going to love it. It's called Privacy Shield. And they then announced final details of this Privacy Shield in May. And you know what? People didn't really love it at all. It's not something that uh, I think is, let's just say it's not a healthy child. And it isn't, I think, materially different from Safe Harbor in some of the respects that were criticized. The scheme opened for business on August 1st. It has attracted a number of companies signing up, you know, uh, depending on who you believe, maybe about 1,500 applications that uh, are being worked through by the U.S. authorities. And some of those are big names, Ernst & Young, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, people like that. Um, but there is a, another challenge coming. There's a hearing in February 2017 in Ireland, which is likely to see Privacy Shield also referred to the European Court of Justice, where it might suffer a similar fate as its big brother, Safe Harbor. In addition, of course, there are a number of other challenges to it. Um, firstly, the Trump administration, I think, is causing some alarm in Europe. Now, again, to oversimplify, part of the foundation of Privacy Shield is a super memo, which is written by Obama to the, uh, uh, as an executive memo, if you like, saying, you, the US authorities, have to give equivalent rights to European nationals as you would give U.S. nationals to complain about issues relating to mass surveillance. And will this super memo be uh, rescinded by Trump? And we don't know the answer to that. We know that he's said good things about the NSA and he's said bad things about them as well. So the first challenge might be from the European Commission saying that a fundamental element of the Privacy Shield deal is no longer in place. And as a result, we will unilaterally withdraw the uh, Privacy Shield option. The second potential challenge is this um, challenge that's going through, you might call it the Schrems 3 case, that's going to the European Court. But that might be about two years away. So we've got this February hearing coming up and then there might be a referral uh, time of maybe another 18 months to get in the ECJ list. Schrems is pretty confident that that challenge will succeed eventually. The, uh, the words he gave me when I interviewed him was, uh, privacy shield is safe harbor with flowers on it. It will probably be killed by the European court. And there are some more challenges as well. 
one of the German regulators, Germany has a state-by-state system rather than a federal system. One of the German regulators has petitioned to have powers to refer it to the ECJ himself. Presumably, he wants to do that more quickly. Ten German regulators have combined to send service to 500 organizations asking if they're using Privacy Shield uh, in specific areas like do you use it for help desk management? Do you outsource your travel management? Do you outsource CRM? Do you outsource marketing? Do you outside rec- outsource recruitment? Do you use the cloud? All of these sort of things. So there's a potential challenge by regulators there. They wouldn't have to go back to court if they think the Privacy Shield's inadequate. They can just effectively start and prosecute businesses who were relying on Privacy Shield and some in Germany would like to see them doing that. And there are a couple of other court challenges going through the system as well. One from an organization called Digital Rights Ireland uh, and one from a uh, consortium of organizations uh, which include uh, La Quadrature du Net, a Paris-based pressure group the French Data Network, the FDN Federation, who are bringing proceedings in a different European court. A little bit complicated to explain the differences, but that's a uh, Luxembourg-based court called the EU General Court. Um, But again, these aren't proceedings that are done very quickly. And one last thing to mention, which again is something that I think people haven't particularly looked at, is Uh, There's a particularly uh, potential bear trap, I think, for the U.S. government here in that, obviously, Schrems' challenge is premised in part on the Snowden allegations and the allegations that the NSA are involved in mass surveillance and that they're using U.S. corporations as part of the proxies, if you like, for this mass surveillance exercise. Now, so far, of course, people have tried to air those issues in U.S. courts, but it's open to the U.S. government to say on the basis of national security, the evidence can't be insisted upon in U.S. proceedings. Now, in court, of course, in Irish proceedings, which the Schrems 3 case is, it would be difficult for the U.S. government to argue that U.S. national security trumps any ability to get evidence from the U.S. government unless they can say that the U.S. national security interest is identical to the Irish national security interest. And the U.S. government applied to effectively be joined into these uh, Irish proceedings So they may themselves uh, uh, be forced to uh, have a trial, if you like, on the veracity of Snowden's allegations. And if they are going to deny the allegations, they may be in a position where the U.S. government has to say, no, Snowden is wrong. This is how the NSA gathers data and and get granular, if you like, as to how the whole of the NSA's operations work. And I'm not sure that's what the U.S. government intended to do when they joined the Schrems 3 proceedings, but that might be an interesting battle 
but one that will, I think, be very long-winded. And why does this matter to corporations doing business in Europe, U.S. corporations? Well, partly because there's all this uncertainty over these various bits of litigation and regulatory activity, but in part because U.S. corporations have had a significantly harder time in areas like internal investigations, in areas like implementing ethics programs in Europe, because workers' representatives, particularly works councils in places like Germany and Austria, uh, France, have, um, ha have spoken about the collapse of Safe Harbor, feel that the court has endorsed what they've been thinking for a long time and are making life very challenging for, for U.S. corporations. So was that a very long-winded answer, Tom, to what's a, <laughs> what's a, what was a simple question? Well, Jonathan, the, um, other than reading, uh, keep reading the client alerts that your firm puts out, what can or should a U.S. corporation do other than perhaps wait until June to see how this all plays out? Or are there any proactive steps they could take in the first quarter or first two quarters of 2017? Yeah, I think there are a number of things you can do. I mean, I think generally, I mean, the other thing on the horizon is U.S. corporations have to prepare for a new set of rules anywhere called the General Data Protection Regulation. They'll increase the fines for getting it wrong to 4% of uh, annual revenue. And uh, U.S. corporations, insofar as they target Europe, they do business in Europe, they employ people in Europe, will be subject directly to the rules as well. So for most corporations, 2017, I think, is going to be a year of data husbandry, if you like. They're going to have to get their houses in order, partly because of the uncertainty of a privacy shield, but partly because of this GDPR coming in as well. One of the things they can do, I think, is to look critically at who they disclose information to and why. This is a challenging area. The UK, for example, also has new investigatory powers legislation in 2017. So, so corporations will often feel that they're obliged to cooperate with various government agencies to provide data. But that's not necessarily the case. Some relatively junior agencies in my experience, ask for very wide pots of data. And for most organizations, they need to have a policy as to whether they're going to cooperate or not and whether they're going to make sure that there's a lawful procedure first. So that's one of the things they can do to limit their, um, their exposure. Secondly, look at what's called subject access requests. This is the start of the Facebook litigation. Schrems makes one of these subject access requests which basically is a request to an organization saying, give me the data you have on me. Those requests become free from May 2018. The amount you can charge doesn't really put many people off anyway. It's only around the $15 mark. But uh, we are going to see an awful lot of subject access requests. So have a process in place uh, to deal with those as well. And I think my third would be look at other mechanisms of data transfer if it's, um, you know, you might be able to get consent arguments, very tricky when you're dealing with employees, but look at whether binding corporate rules might be an answer for you. EU model terms could be an answer, but they're subject to challenge in the European uh, court case as well. So it's going to be a challenging situation, 
But I think for most U.S. corporations, you don't want to be choosing one horse in the race, particularly if that horse is privacy shield. You know, if this was the Kentucky Derby, you have got the opportunity to back, you know, four horses rather than put all of your money on one. So why wouldn't you adopt that as a cautious strategy? Well, Jonathan, thank you very much. My pleasure, Tom. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.